0: First John chapter number 2 tonight. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 18. Now, last week, last Wednesday, we did read all these verses. We're not going to go through all of them. Uh, we will read all of them, but we're not going to go through all of them. But uh, I'm probably going to begin right around verse 20. But we'll begin at verse 18. The Bible says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall also continue, also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, pray that you bless your word tonight, that your Son would be magnified, lifted up, and glorified. I pray, Father, that You take Your Word and apply it to our hearts. We can gain an academic knowledge of our own will and of our own energy, but we can't gain a spiritual understanding except the sweet Holy Spirit of God open our hearts and minds to it. So we ask You, Father, to do this for each and every one here. Help us to be surrendered, Lord, as You apply these things, not just through encouragement, but, Father, also through exhortation. God, that You do in us what only You are able to do. Father, we love You and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been studying through the book of 1 John. And we've given a little bit of historical background. I'm not going to give a lot of it, but I'll give you a very short, uh, brief synopsis of what the background in 1 John is. John is writing to a little group of believers that uh, were being persecuted by a group known as Gnostics. Now, Gnostics was a first century terminology, and really the idea and the belief system of Gnosticism still exists in the day that we live in, although it's not called Gnosticism. And basically what Gnosticism is and what Gnostics were, were people that claimed to have a special extra-scriptural revelation from God. And they held this quote-unquote revelation to be superior to the teachings of the Word of God. They claimed that it was uh, superior to what God had already given And we've talked about how that, uh, if if you think of a person that's an agnostic, if you add A to anything, it negates it. An atheist is someone that's not a theist, or someone that is amoral is someone that's not moral. Well, if an agnostic is someone that has no knowledge of God, then a gnostic, being the opposite, would be someone that claims to have a superior knowledge of God. And this still exists today. It exists much in the charismatic movement, people claiming that they've had a, a special revelation or that God speaks particularly to them in a way uh, outside of His Word. And let me say this, that I do believe that God communicates to us uh, through the wooing and moving and stirring of the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe that the only means through which God communicates with us is His Word. I believe He also impresses upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit things. But let me say two things. One is this, uh, that will never be contrary to Scripture, ever. Ever. You see, what you have in your hand before you came by the Holy Spirit of God. So he's not going to contradict what he's already said. He's just as much God as God the Son or God the Father is. And let me say, too, that whatever that impression may be, uh, it doesn't trump the teachings of Scripture. And, uh, you know, I I have gotten to a point where I I don't really argue much with people about what their experiences are. Uh, There's no sense in an arguing with with people about their experiences because experience always seems to trump, uh, you know, uh, academic knowledge or intellectual understanding. But as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as we all should be concerned, the Word of God should take precedence over what any man thinks or what any man claims happened to him. The Word of God is the primary and preeminent uh, guide and truth in our lives. And I believe sometimes, you know, uh, the the, you hear people talking about dreams and visions. I know there was a time when God dealt with mankind in dreams and visions. And you say, well, preacher, does He deal with mankind in dreams and visions now? Well, I, I can't really say to you one way or the other, but I know this. I know that in these last days, God hath spoken to us through His Son. And what's His Son? Well, His Son is the person of Jesus Christ, but it's also the incarnate Word of God as well as the preserved Word of God. This is the means and the channel through which God speaks to His church and God speaks to us. And the Bible says that no man's to add to or take away from so I believe that we need to have that understanding. And it exists today, like I said, not just in the charismatic movement. The Roman Catholic Church claims that uh, when the Pope sits in, uh, I guess it's St. Peter's Basilica when he sits, sits what they call ex cathedra, that he speaks for Christ and that what he speaks is infallible. Well, what he's claiming is to have an advanced knowledge that's extra scriptural that's above what the Word of God teaches. So Gnosticism is alive and well today. But as far as some sort of cohesive movement, you don't really see. I mean, nobody puts on their dog tags, I'm Gnostic, amen? But uh, the ideology is still there. And so these Gnostics claim to have an extra-scriptural revelation from God. There was a facet of them that was called docetism. Some of you are thinking, preacher, you've told us this time and time again. Well, I know I have, but, you know, repetition makes perfect, amen? So we're going to stick in and learn it. Uh, Docetism was a facet of Gnosticism, and they held the three chief heresies. And I want to give them to you very quickly. One of them is that all things material are evil, and all things spiritual are good. So everything of the spiritual realm is good and everything of the material realm is bad. Now, that sounds good, you know. I mean, we hear that and that sounds like, well, man, that's right on key. But the problem with that is you have to reject creation. You have to reject the incarnation. You have to reject uh, the resurrection. There's much that God has done in this physical realm that is right and that is righteous. And the manifestation of His person in His Son, God manifest in the flesh, was something that was tangible. And our, uh, the Bible teaches us that the disciples, uh, you know, they could hug Him. They, they could hold Him. He, he sat down and ate fish with them on the seashore. And so the second main heresy that they believed was that uh, Jesus was a human and that Christ was a spirit that descended upon Him at the baptism and departed from Him before the crucifixion. Now, you say, well, why would they believe that? Well, there's a thing called theological consequence. And I've done a little bit of talking about this, but I I believe it's so important that we as Christians understand and believe and know what theological consequence is. Theological consequence is this. If I believe A, then I must believe C, and consequently I must believe G. We'll put it that way. I could have said A, B, C, but I'm difficult, you know? Uh, If I believe this, I have to believe that. And a lot of times, you know, preachers like us, we, we get a lot of heat. And I was talking about this in Sunday school. Uh, now, let me go ahead and tell you something. And this is going to go out on the Internet, and everybody's probably going to persecute me anyway over it, so I don't really care. But I, I'm going to tell you right now, I, as long as whatever you watch is not ex- or is not anti-scriptural or sinful or wicked, it don't bother me. It's just entertainment. Uh, let me say that I don't endorse everything that entertains me. I might turn on an episode of Andy Griffith, and I'd tell any preacher brethren that wanted to know that I'm happy to turn on an episode of Andy Griffith. But that doesn't mean that I endorse Otis getting out and going and getting drunk, or you or me getting out and getting drunk. Just because it entertains you, that doesn't mean you ought to stamp your name on it. So having said that, and I'm getting ready to jump in with both feet, some of y'all are going to walk out when I say this. But there's been all this controversy, and if you got Facebook, you see it all the time, about what do we all think about Duck Dynasty? Let me tell you what I think about it. I think it's a TV program. It's all it is. It's a TV program. If it entertains you, God bless you. Uh, I, I've, I've never... I don't like it. Mainly, I've just got this problem with people walking up to me all the time and accusing me of being one of them, you know? But if that entertains you, that's fine. That don't bother me. Uh, from what people say, it's a pretty wholesome show. Uh, but by the same token, let me tell you this. The men on that show are Church of Christ. So they believe in salvation through baptism. Now, you say, what's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot wrong with it. But let me give you an example of theological consequence. And I'm going to get to preaching here in a second, but I think we need this because we've been... It's time for us to move off some milk and onto some meat of the Word. And this is part of maturing as Christians. Uh, Theological consequence is this. If I believe that my baptism contributes to my salvation, if that's A, then C would be... I believe that what Christ did on Calvary isn't sufficient to save me. See, there's theological consequence to what you believe. Now, with that said, are you say, you know, some of you are thinking, well, preacher, do I need to go home and, and get, you know, erase all the Duck Dynasty off my... I don't care whether you erase it or watch it or buy a t-shirt. It don't matter to me. But I'm just merely saying this. We ought to be careful what we stamp our name next to. Because there is such thing as theological consequence. If I believe this, I've got to believe that. Let me give you another example. If I believe that there are multiple versions of the Word of God, then I believe there is no singular version of the Word of God. That's theological consequence. And if I believe that there is no perfect inspired Word of God in this day that we live in, then I must believe that God did not keep His Word when He promised He'd preserve it. And I could go on and on. I could say, well, consequentially, theologically consequential, uh, I could say that if I believe there is no perfect... Uh, preservation of Scripture, that man has corrupted it, then man has the capability, if he can corrupt the written Word, to corrupt the living Word. Isn't that right? And if I believe that man can corrupt the written Word and he can corrupt the living Word, then surely the sins of all mankind placed upon him and him being made sin for us, surely that would have tainted and corrupted him and his righteousness has not been preserved. Now, let me say this too. That doesn't mean everybody that reads an NIV Bible believes Jesus is sinful. They don't all believe that. That doesn't mean everybody that watches Duck Dynasty believes baptism is part of salvation either. But what it does mean is not that we need to go around and start policing everybody, what they watch and what, what Bible they're carrying. But what it does mean is this. We need to be careful how we live our lives. We need to understand there's, there's consequences to the choices and the things that we do and the things we're a part of. And so that doesn't mean, I understand, and and some of you probably heard that fellow's testimony or this or that. I don't know. Uh, Brother Kerry's diehard. He's watching him before there was a duck dynasty, you know. He's watching him just when he's selling duck calls. But, uh, you know, I don't know what the man's testimony is. I don't know whether the man's saved. That's between him and God. I know that if he's trusting in baptism to get him to heaven, then he's not saved. But not everybody that's a part of a Church of Christ church is trusting in their baptism. That's just the stark reality of it. So I'm not saying this so that you can draw these lines and say, so-and-so crossed it so they're not saved. But I'm saying it so you understand that what we believe matters. It makes a difference, what we believe. And so there's theological consequences. Back to what we were talking about. Uh, they believed in, uh, the, that Jesus was a human, Christ was a spiritual. Why did they believe that? Well, that was a theological consequence of believing that everything material is evil and everything spiritual is good. What are they going to do with the incarnation? Here's God manifest in the flesh. How are they going to face that? How are they going to explain that? So they had to concoct this ludicrous notion just to make an allowance for that. Well, let me give you a third heresy, and it really all hinges on this. They believed in a, what they called a moral superiority. They believed that they sinned like you sinned, but they were so spiritually enlightened that when they sinned, it wasn't sin like it's sinned for you. And so is the mantra of relativism in the world that we live in today. You do what's right for you, I'll do what's right for me. And somewhere along the line, people just quit doing right. We just quit doing right. The reality of it is this. God's Word gives us the guidelines as to what is right and what is wrong. And if we are to be right, then we have to be right according to God's Word. It's the only way to be right. We have to be right according to His guidelines, what He teaches, what He expects, or we're not really right. We can have the whole nation agree with us that something is okay, but that doesn't mean it's okay with God. And so everything really hinged on this moral superiority because they believed they could sin and it wasn't wrong. Well, how could they believe that? In their mind, they had compartmentalized that which was material and that which was spiritual. And they said, my body may be sinning, but I'm so spiritually above it all that it's not really sin to me. And so, consequently, they must believe that all things material are evil, all things spiritual are good. Consequently, they must believe Jesus was a human, Christ was a spirit. So these are the three main heresies. And we've been studying through and seeing why John wrote what he wrote. And I think that's important to know. Now, I could give you just random applications. I could preach you a message uh, that would apply to your life. And I hope this will apply to your life tonight. But I want us to understand why John wrote what he wrote. So last week we talked about the use of the word Antichrist in verses 18 and 19. And talked about how John spoke of these people that were persecuting this little church and said, hey, listen, they left you, but they didn't leave you because, uh, you know, you're not spiritual. They didn't leave you because you're wrong. They left you because they weren't of you and they're not of God. he says in verse number 20, he says, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Now, why did John write that? Well, John wrote it because you have to remember, the people persecuting this church were Gnostics. They're saying, hey, we've got this special revelation from God. We're head and shoulders above where you're at. I mean, we've been so spiritually enlightened that, that we know more than what you know. And John says, listen, don't let them shame you for one minute. You have an unction from the Holy One. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit of God that anointing of God, and we could spend a whole sermon talking about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. and All of those things are biblical, if they're biblically understood, and all those things are profitable. But as he speaks of anointing, anointing throughout the Old Testament was always something that was done, always with oil, and it was done any time they were going to consecrate a new priest, a new prophet, or a new king. And this anointing was something that showed God's blessing and capability being bestowed upon a person for a particular job or task. And John says this, you're part of the Beloved. You're accepted in the Beloved. You're a child of God. Uh, And as a child of God, God has equipped you to walk with Him and to study His Word and to know His truth and to live the Christian life that He's asked you to live. He says, you have this unction. They may say they have an advanced revelation, but you have this unction. You have the Spirit of God indwelling you. Let me say this. There's a difference between intellectually knowing something and spiritually knowing something. Uh, you know, there, there is, and I've given this illustration when I was growing up. I mean, I had all kinds of people telling me that I was lost and it didn't mean anything. But I intellectually knew that. I mean, if somebody had asked Toby Weber, uh, you know, hey, if, if a person dies without Christ, where will they go? Even this little boy I would have said they'd go to hell. But then, on December 1st, 1997, God spoke it to my heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I had a spiritual understanding of it. Why do you think it is that some of the world's, and listen carefully to what I'm about to say, some of the world's greatest theologians are unregenerate people. Unregenerate. The new versions of the Bible are are all based off of a uh, corrupt Greek text by two men by the name of of, uh, Westcott and Hort. And if you study their life and study their history, and I'm being honest now, they were some of the greatest quote-unquote theologians of their day. You read other writers and everybody was quoting Bishop Westcott and Bishop Hort. They had an academic and intellectual grasp of the Word of God that very few people did in that day. But you go through their biography, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of their biography, and you won't find a single salvation experience. You won't find a single time where any of them says, I confess myself a sinner and ask Christ to forgive me. And these are their personal letters, mind you. I mean, these aren't, when I say biography, this isn't some, you know, Yahoo over at Cornell or, uh, you know, Harvard or something wrote a biography. This was their life and letters that have been compiled. And you can buy them to this day uh, in the life and letters of Westcott and Hort. Hundreds of pages of them writing letters to people and corresponding with people. Never once do they talk about coming to know Christ and about their Lord and Savior. They were men that were undoubtedly unregenerate. They had an academic or an intellectual knowledge. But that won't get you very far. I've heard this said before, and it's said tongue-in-cheek, and I kind of like, you know, this saying that, that you can have as many degrees as you want. A thermometer has 32 and still frozen. And I'm not I'm not against academic knowledge. I'm not against intellectual knowledge. I mean what we're doing here tonight and what we're doing on Monday nights is academically and intellectually deeper than a lot of what you get anywhere else. I'm not against it. But I'm saying except we surrender to the leading and teaching of the Holy Spirit and allow it to be applied to our lives personally, it's not going to to benefit us one inkling. We have to surrender ourselves to the teaching and wooing and leading of the Holy Spirit. He says, you have an unction, one, from the Holy One, and you know all things. Verse 21, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Now, why is he saying this? Because you've got to remember, these Gnostics were saying, your problem is you don't know as much as we do. John says, no. John says, I'm not writing to you to enlighten you. I'm not writing to you because you don't know. I'm writing to you because you do know. And because you know the truth and you know that no lie is of the truth. What was their quandary that they were in? They knew the truth of the gospel this little church did. They knew what Christ had done for them. They knew what the truth was. But here they are being persecuted by these loud voices. Let me say, we live in a society of loud voices, don't we? You get enough people shouting it loud enough, pretty soon people get bullied and they, and they cow down to the opinion and to the persuasion of society. I'm reminded what happened to Pilate. You know, the book of Acts says that Pilate was determined to let Christ go. But it says in the Gospels that the voices prevailed against him. And that's the society we live in, man. I mean, you can show, you can show scientifically, uh, biologically, medically that an unborn child is still a child, but you'll have voices that start yelling and hollering and lobbyists that start picketing and money that starts getting donated and the politicians getting corrupted and it seems like the voices are prevailing all the time. We could say it about any number of different political or socio-political or morally political uh, topics, but it just feels like that in society sometimes, don't it? It feels like it's getting worse and worse and worse. And sometimes it's like you look around and think, where has all this madness come from? And I'm sure that's how this little church felt. Here are these Gnostics, so self-assured. Listen to me, there's no man more self-assured than him that has deceived himself. No man more self-assured than him that has deceived himself. You know what Hitler said about telling a lie? He said that if you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, anyone will believe it. He said, and they're more apt to believe a big lie than they are a small lie. That's the mantra of society that we live in. There's no question about that. And that's what they were facing. Here are these people that seem so self-assured, so arrogant, saying, oh, we have this special revelation from God. John says, no, they don't have anything from God. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the gospel. You have the truth of the Word of God. And I'm not writing to you to correct you, I'm writing to you to encourage you that you're on the right path and that you know the truth. It says in verse number 22, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Well, could we find much more plain an example of refuting the heresy they believed? They believed that Jesus was a human, Christ was a spirit. John says, Who's a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? So John, you can almost sense a, I don't know if this is the right word, a swagger in his voice a confidence, as John writes this, where he says, listen, I write unto you because you know the truth and you know that no lie is of the truth. And who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He says your salvation was based upon putting your faith in the truth and fact that Jesus is the Christ. This whole thing began because you put your faith in him as the Messiah and as the Savior. He's saying, you know that they're a liar, that claim that Jesus is not the Christ, that deny that he's the Christ. Let me make a very plain statement right here. The world has no trouble believing in God, but they get mighty upset when you start talking about Jesus Christ. God is a generic term. We talk about God all day long. Uh, What is the main controversy over at most football games, high school football games? Brother Richard, I'm sure, keeps his ear to the ground about this stuff because he's around a lot more than most people. It's not the idea of praying. It's the idea of praying to Jesus Christ. That's what upsets people. Well, why? Well, you see that 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 is a statement, or that is a name of exclusivity and of singularity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Jehovah. I'll tell this story again, and I and I probably ought not, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, about me and my wife were, were sitting in the Applebee's one time. And uh and and some of you if you condemn that that's okay. You don't have to go with us. I won't share my appetizer with you anyway. But we weren't sitting at the bar, we were sitting over, you know, some somewhere else. But you know how it is in those places. Uh, you know, some people just can't wait to ten o'clock at night to go out and get drunk like a normal drunk. They've got to go try to get drunk middle of the day at a at a restaurant bar. And uh so we were sitting across the way and you know, those whole restaurants are all built around those bars, everyone you go to except for Cracker Barrel it seems, and and so we're sitting there, and, and we see this old man. And, you know, you, you pay at most of these places, you pay for your pickup order at the bar. And this old man is in a suit and a tie, and he looks like a preacher. He's got the preacher hair. You know, it's like slick back. I mean, it, it's, it's shiny, like the hood of a 54 Buick. I mean, it's just sharp. And he, he's standing there, and he's arguing with a young man. And I, I start hearing words like hell you know, and not hell as an expletive, but hell in a theological sense. And I thought, well, man, that old man's trying to lead that fellow to the Lord. God bless him. And as I listened a little closer, I came to realize that that old man that I thought was a preacher was actually a Jehovah's Witness. And the drunk at the bar was trying to convince that Jehovah's Witness that hell was a real place. And at that point, I thought I'd wake up and be in my own bed, you know. And I didn't. And so I, you know, I, I, I did what I always do. I kept my mouth shut. No, I didn't do that. I leaned over. And, you know, I got the little rail and I leaned over and I said, Hey, preacher! And he's going on just talking 90 miles an hour. And I said, Hey, preacher! Of course, I didn't think he was one, but I knew he'd answer to it. And that, that drunk pointed at me and everything. He turned around and I said, Hey, preacher, the Bible says in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments. And then he come my way, you know. <laughs> he had already talked to the drunk. He was going to talk to me now. So he comes my way and he starts talking to me. He he says, uh, he says, Hey, I bet you don't even know what chapter of the Bible that's in. I said, I do. It's Luke chapter number 16, verses 34 through 42. He said, Oh, <laughs> And he said, well, you know, that's a parable. I said, no, sir, I'm sorry, that's not a parable. He said, no, it says, then Christ spake this parable. I said, no, sir, you're wrong. It does not say, then Christ spake this parable. And he said, well, do you have a Bible? I said, right out in the car. He said, go get it. And I went to get up and he sat me back down. (laughs) And he said, well, well, you know, that word hell, uh, you know, that that's the Old Testament word sheol, you know, and that's talking about the grave. I said, no, sir, there are times that it's talking about the grave, but I think it's abundantly clear in Luke chapter 16 uh, that that's not the Old Testament Hebrew word sheol. That's the New Testament uh, Greek word hades. And uh, even beyond that being the word hades, I think it's evident when you see that this man was torn in this flame that this is not talking about the grave. And so he stumbles around a little bit, and finally he says... Uh, Well, whose God do you worship? I said, I worship the Lord God, Jehovah. And he didn't know what to say. He said, you do? I said, yep, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he finally got twisted around and just ran off, just walked out. He didn't mind talking about God. But you say that name, Jesus Christ, and that ruffles feathers. That upsets people. You can talk to a Muslim about God. You can even talk to a Muslim about Jesus, but you can't talk to a Muslim about Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ denotes that he is the Messiah that was promised to come. So this is what John is saying. He's saying this is the key issue. And he says, if he denies that, he is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Now, he said that one of the ways you deny Christ is by denying that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. And then he says it doesn't matter what else they say. If they've denied Jesus Christ, they don't have the Father. And we can have all the presidents, politicians, popes, preachers in the world that can say they have a relationship with God. But if it's not through his Son, Jesus Christ, Christ said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the only way. So this is one of the key issues that John deals with. He says in verse 24, "...let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father." Now let me say that we have a certain expectation of language in our day that we live in. And there's certain language we hear that sounds a little unfamiliar to us. But if we dissect this, and I don't mean try to climb into the Greek, and I, don't mean, I just mean if we read it carefully. And don't try to attribute to that anything that it's not saying then we find the clear presentation of the truth that's being given. Now, John is talking about the same thing, the same beginning that he's been talking about all through 1 John. There's three beginnings in the Word of God. There's the beginning of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's the beginning before the beginning. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, there's the state of existence before there was ever a state of activity. And what was that state of existence? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Not in the beginning, the Word was created. In the beginning was the Word. And the same was in the beginning with God. The Bible says that... the Word was God. That upsets both the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons when you say that. So uh, that's the beginning before the beginning. But then there's a third beginning spoken of, and it's this beginning, which is the beginning of the gospel, or the beginning of the dispensation of grace. And so what, what John is saying here, let's read it carefully. He says, "...let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning." What's that? The simple gospel truth that Jesus Christ... The Son of God, God manifest in the flesh, came to this earth, died for our sins, became our sins, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Or as 1 Corinthians 15 gives it to us, Paul says, I deliver unto you that which I first also received, how that Christ uh, was uh, crucified and uh, buried according to the Scriptures, and the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. So that's the basic gospel. We have to understand who the person is that we're speaking about, of Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, I just believe Jesus died. Well, it's not enough just to believe a historical figure named Jesus died in your place. You have to believe that He's the Son of God. That's who Jesus Christ is. The Bible says according to the Scriptures. So biblically, we have to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day. That's what John's talking about. He's saying stay on this road or in this way that you have began in. You began following Jesus Christ. He says, if that gospel abides in you, now notice two things. The first thing he says is a commandment to let them do something. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. There's nothing where John is saying here, if you turn away from the gospel, God turns away from you. John never says, if you uh, start to believe a perverted gospel, you lose your salvation. That's not what John says here. John gives a simple commandment to let that therefore abide in you. He's saying, stay with the gospel. And then he makes a second statement. He says, if that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Now, there's two ways we can approach this. We can either approach it by seeing this as a statement of warning or a statement of simple truth and fact. You say, what's the difference? If we believe this to be a statement of warning, then we believe a person can lose their salvation. Because if what John is saying is this, if John's saying, by saying, if that therefore remain in you, if he's saying, stick with the gospel, and if you don't, you're going to lose it, then he's implying that you can lose your salvation. If, on the other hand, this is just a simple statement of fact, if you were to just cover up the first half of that verse, and I'm not suggesting we take it out, I'm just saying, if you isolate this statement by itself, and just look at it as, as a statement. He's saying, if that remains in you, you'll continue in the Father and the Son. Now, why is he saying this? Because there are some that have not continued in the Father and the Son. They never were in the Father and the Son. And their big concern and their big worry is, what do we believe now? What do we do now? What do we follow now? And John says, no, 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 you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if, if Jesus Christ, and if the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that remains in you, you'll continue in the Father and the Son. I believe there's some clarity given by the next verse, verse 25, and this is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. What's John saying? John's saying, look, you're in Christ, there's no getting out of Christ. If that remains in you, you'll continue in the Father and the Son. Well, that will remain in you, because you didn't put it in you, God put it in you and put you in Him when you trusted Him. And he's saying, God's made you a promise, and that promise is eternal life. He has promised you in His Son life everlasting. I'm glad that a promise isn't dependent upon my feelings. A promise isn't dependent upon my actions. A promise isn't even dependent upon my attitude. It's dependent wholly on the person that gives the promise. God promised me, if I'd put my faith in Jesus Christ, that He'd give me eternal life. He has done that. One day when I see Him, I will step into that eternal life, if I could put it that way. I've got it right now. I'm never going to lose it, but I'm merely saying experientially, that life as this body gives way, or if this body is changed at the coming of Jesus Christ, either way, we enter into that eternal life and out of this temporal life that we're in. He says in verse 26, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Well, that's pretty simple. John says, I'm writing to you because they're giving you a hard time. I'm writing unto you because there is a desire for them to draw you away. He says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say uh, that you should have that anointing, or hopefully that anointing, or if you do write that anointing, will abide in you. No, it's just a declarative statement. He says, "...the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. Uh, But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall..." Not ye should. "...ye shall abide in him." So this is not a question of what's going to happen to these believers. John says, "...I'm writing unto you because of them that seduce you, and I'm giving you some encouragement." That because you put your faith in Christ, you will abide in him because that anointing abides in you. Let me just say a quick word about the use of that word teach there. It says that self-same anointing, it teacheth you. Uh, That's not teach in the sense of, uh, oh, we don't ever need to study our Bibles or we don't ever need to go and be a part of a church or a Bible study, this, that, or the other. But that teach is in the context of these Gnostics that claim they had been given a special revelation that they should then convey to others. John's saying, you don't need that. You don't need someone to get this special revelation from God. You have the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God. And that anointing teacheth you. It applies the truth of the Word of God. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. So this is a warning. Now, it was not a warning before when He said, to let that therefore abide in you. It was an exhortation. He didn't say, let that therefore abide in you or else... And it wasn't a warning when he said, if that which ye have heard from the beginning abideth in you, ye shall also continue in the Father and the Son. He wasn't saying that you either keep it or it don't keep you. But here we finally do have a warning. And what is the confines or the context or the parameters of that warning? If you abide in Him, well, what does it mean to abide in Him? Well, don't you know John told us in John 15? I don't have time to go through all that, but John told us what it is to abide in fellowship with Him to walk with him day in and day out. And what is the warning? We can either do it and not have confidence at his coming, or we can do it and have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. Let me just say that I think I think John is in a in a sense kind of twisting the dagger if I can put it that way when he speaks of his coming, because he's speaking of his coming in the flesh. And some say, "Well, you mean the revelation, no, when he comes in the rapture, he's still coming in the flesh." He's in his glorified body right now. And that glorified body is still flesh. It's just glorified. You remember he told the disciples to reach out and touch my hands, touch my side. He ate the fish. That was when he had a glorified body. And so John is just reinforcing this. That same Jesus Christ that they deny, he's coming back again. And he said, they may not abide in him, but you will abide in him and abide with him. Walk with him so that you don't have to be ashamed. And finally, he sums it up in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. It doesn't say everyone that doeth good, everyone that is moral, everyone that is a churchgoer. It says everyone that doeth righteousness. We can only do righteousness if we have been, uh, had his righteousness robed about us and placed upon us. Righteousness deals not only with action, but with motive. We can only have the right motive if we've been born again. A lost person can do the right thing, but he can't do it with the right motive. Only a saved person can do the right thing with the right motive because he does it to the glory and for the glory of God. And everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. That's the acid test. What does a person's life say? And By the way, and John never says here that if a person messes up that they're not saved, but if a person lives a total life of disobedience and unrighteousness, then that does tell you something about their spiritual condition.